So the first time I was ever asked to share my testimony, I was pretty terrified. Believe it or not, I'm a bit of an introvert. Um, it felt very scary to reveal some of the dark places in my life. And so we were going to do this at a marriage retreat. And so I was sitting in the house getting ready for the event that day. I was by myself in prayer, and I just kept saying, Lord, what am I going to do with this? What do you want me to say to them? How do I talk about this path that you've had me on? And so I found a Bible in the drawer. It was brand new. It actually cracked when I opened it. And I decided to just lay it open. I was in a retreat center. It wasn't my house. It was just a Bible that was there. And I opened it up and I just laid it down on the desk. And there was one scripture verse that was underlined in it in pencil. It was brand new. And this scripture verse, which was underlined, and by the way, the Bible is still there. The scripture verse is still underlined. I don't know who did it, but I know it was for me and for you. Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for me. I cried aloud to him, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. I want to start with a scripture verse from Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. I was born to an agnostic father and to a Catholic mother. My father was 55. My mother was 25 when they married. My father was a retired pilot, God rest his soul. He died 17 years ago. And he had gone on kind of an expedition to try to figure out where he wanted to retire. He had a friend down in Costa Rica. My mother's Costa Rican. And so he went down there to visit him. He was kind of hanging out, checking out all the beautiful opportunities that were there. It's an exquisite country, if you've ever been. 
And the people are just amazing, and the food's even better. And so he went down, and he's trying to figure out what to do. And his friend said, you know, you should go down to the post office. Thank you. Think there's something there that you might like. And think about the mentality of that statement. So my dad goes down to the post office, and my mother was working there. She was 25, exquisitely beautiful. She had an eighth grade education, and she was one of 13 children. And her parents were very devout and very pious. So he sees her, and of course, the interest is made, and so he pursues her. And in time, he convinces her to marry him and to move to the United States. My mother, being one of 13, had seen a lot of tragedy, tragedy and trauma already in her life. She had had two brothers that were killed um, tragically one of illness, one in a plane crash. Her sisters, though her older sisters who had married, unfortunately their marriages were tragic. One married a womanizer and my aunt would literally iron and fold the clothes of her husband knowing that he was leaving to be with others. Another married a man who took her away from the faith, became idolaters of money and position and power, and had twisted her heart into bitterness. Another married an abuser. She had become pregnant and she married him. She stayed with him and he beat her so severely at one point while she was pregnant that her child fell at her feet as she was teaching in front of her class. That was what my mother knew. She could look to her parents and see beauty and goodness in marriage, but that wasn't the reality that her sisters had walked into. When she let that fear motivate her, and so she responded to my father's advances and decided that she would marry him. He was older, he was established, he, was, he had money. She wouldn't have to worry about how to take care of herself. And she had hoped that in his age that he would bring stability. He married her civilly after asking for permission to marry her to my grandparents with the promise, oh, we'll take care of your marriage. When, we'll take care of getting married in the church when we get to the States. Because, of course, there was something there. And my mother in her naivete and my grandparents in their naivete believed him. They get to the States. My mother's very well cared for. She has a beautiful home. She has all that she needs, beautiful clothing, status. 
but she didn't have her marriage in the church. And when I was born two years later, he would encourage her to go to Mass. In fact, if she, didn't, if she wasn't getting ready for Mass, he would question it. Why aren't you going to Mass? As if, is there something wrong? You need to go to Mass. So he supported her in that. God be praised and God rest his soul. But he didn't join her in that. And there was no sacramental coverage for me or for our family. So she knew that he wasn't going to agree to have me baptized because he said, oh, no, no, let her grow up and choose for herself. When she's older, she can make that choice. God be praised, my mother was a little rebellious and a little sneaky. And she decided, no, I'm not waiting. This, the Lord has given me this child that I so desperately wanted. And so I'm going to have her baptized. And so clandestinely, she went to the priest while my father was out of town on one of his flights. And with my aunt, who had come to live with them, had me baptized into, the, into Holy Mother Church. So I was raised in a situation where I had no sacramental coverage of the marriage, where I had no spiritual coverage, and where there was constant turmoil and difficulty. My mother was no wallflower. Uh, she's strong-willed, a bit fiery, as some Latin women can be. And she discovered over time that he had actually had several marriages before her, accidentally. She came across some paperwork and thought, what is this, and starts to look through it. And what was tumultuous in the beginning then became outright intolerable. My childhood when I was little was like walking around on eggshells. I was waiting for the next shoe to drop, for the explosion of wrath. My, one of my keenest memories of my childhood is running and hiding under my bed and locking the door and my dad banging on the door trying to get in and screaming at me. I was terrified. He was a very wounded man. I don't hold him in judgment. I judge the actions but not his heart. His mother was Methodist and she used the faith to beat him into submission. He would often wake up to a broomstick, hitting him and getting him out of bed, all while claiming Christ as Savior and Lord. You can come to understand that my father had quite a bit of shame and aversion to any kind of faith. He often told me, Steffi, you're religious enough for the both of us. And there's too much in my life that I'm too ashamed of, that I can't deal with. So growing in this time of growing up, in this kind of idyllic little house in an idyllic little neighborhood, around the age where I was four or five years old, I was playing in the yard, 
And the neighbor, unbeknownst to my parents, was a pedophile. And I remember him coaching me and drawing me into his garage. He had set things up where children have this natural curiosity and, oh, what's that? And that's shiny and rock tumblers and, you know, crystal rocks and all these things that are intriguing and beautiful to children. And he used that to coax me in. And then he stole my innocence. He left the garage door just slightly ajar so that if my mother called, he could put me down and let me run back to my mom. I was too young, too innocent, too tender to even understand what was happening to me. I remember being profoundly confused. So I never told my mom and those memories got locked away. My parents divorced around the time that I was eight or nine years old. And shortly after that, a few years later, my mother remarried to a man who had his own wounds, his own brokenness. His family had been decimated by the wounds of the mother. It's too much to even share here. But suffice it to say, he had three daughters who were traumatized. She had one daughter that was traumatized, and we came together. He was a man of the church. He later became a deacon and truly became my father. Has done extraordinary, heroic things for me and for our family. Nonetheless, they were broken, wounded, and trying to figure out how to bring together this family and how to make it work. Their intent was good. We never missed Sunday Mass. We never missed Holy Days of Obligation. But I never recall praying a rosary together. We were more culturally Catholic growing up, really. And of course, at that time, the formation in the church that we were receiving where I was growing up was downright pitiful. So I had no idea who I was in relation to God, who God was, who his church was, what I was being called to, what was at my fingertips for my formation and salvation. I just knew that when I went to church and they sang Kumbaya, that somehow I was drawn to him. So in that situation, as I was growing up, I was starting to seek my worth and my validation in anything, anyone, as many of us do. So it was a very pretty broken childhood, one of isolation, self-reliance, a great deal of fear, a great deal of unworthiness, a feeling of unworthiness. And I went off to college 
because that was what we were supposed to do, and really fell away, fell away from the faith, fell away from everything, and fell into sin, terrible brokenness. Pretty soon, I was, towards the end, I was engaged to be married to somebody that I liked. Um, we had a shared interest in music, and I thought, well, I, I've, got to, I've got to get married because I've got to get out of this life that I'm living. I was terrified that I would scandalize my family. I had no stability underneath me. I felt untethered and lost. So I thought marriage was the answer. And I remember standing at the back of the church. And mind you, he was not a Catholic. It didn't even occur to me that that would be a problem. It didn't occur to me that the fact that he refused to have anything with the church or have any discussion about it would be a problem. I was so naive and my intellect was so darkened. So I'm marrying this man who isn't Catholic and I'm standing at the back of the church in my wedding gown. The guests are there. The musicians have been assembled. The priest is standing at the front waiting for me to come down. And my father, my biological father, looks at me. And this is the moment he chose to do this. And he looked at me and he said, Steffi, you don't need to do this. You don't need to do this. We can call it off. And I looked at him with incredulity. What are you talking about? I'm wearing my gown. Everybody's here. We've spent all this money. And I said, we're going to get married. What was in my heart that I couldn't tell him was you don't understand. Nobody else will have me. Nobody else will have me. I have to do this because it's the only path forward that I can see. I have to move forward. So uh, within a month, I was pregnant and I miscarried my first child. Three months later, I was pregnant with my next pregnancy, with my next child. This one stuck. And I remember being in the hospital, and they placed my daughter in my arms. And I was holding her and looking down upon her and really moving very quickly from being a child to a woman in that moment, and holding her and thinking, I'm responsible for this child. All the things that we think about, her needs, diapers, clothes, food, nurseries, all of those things. But this thought, very gentle, entered into my mind and said, I'm responsible for her soul. It's a moment of grace. Something changed. And I had somehow, through that moment of grace, an understanding that this wasn't just about having things all nice and tidy. 
and presentable. So I begin to pray a little with her. I remember singing songs to her, teaching her how to pray. Nothing too profound, but, you know, guardian angel prayers. Now I lay me down to sleep, getting her into catechesis. Five years later, her brother comes along, and I just knew I had to have another child. It wasn't an option. And still, we think about that scripture verse, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. I was going to church, I was going to the Catholic church, but we were also going to his church. I didn't even realize that was a sin. I would go to one church in the morning. I would kneel there as they passed out the Hawaiian bread and the Welch's grape juice. And then about an hour later, we would go to the Catholic church because I had made a promise to raise the children Catholic. And I had no sense that I could raise them as anything else, but still couldn't figure out that that was a problem going to the Methodist church and the confusion that I was causing in my children. And so I raised them that way, going back and forth. We were building our house on sand, not on rock. We had no shared faith. We had no prayer outside of praying before meals and that guardian angel prayer at night. We also had no community to help us. I was very isolated. I didn't have girlfriends. I, I didn't have others that shared the faith. I had no understanding that maybe how I was living was not God's will for me and that there was so much more. One of the things that the enemy loves is isolation. We can think about the story of, of Adam and Eve. What does he do? He lures Eve out into the garden by herself so he can start to whisper to her, so he can start to deceive her. And I was extraordinarily isolated in this life I was living. So as the enemy often does, and I believe it's kind of the inroad to the enemy's work, especially in marriage, discontent started to ruminate in my heart. Comparison started to ruminate in my heart how everybody else, their house was better, their life was better, their car was better, right? They had more freedom, they were getting to go on vacation, all of that stuff that starts to, we start to see our life and how we have, uh, what we have through, an, uh, through a lens of ingratitude. And we start to look everywhere, you know, the grass is always greener, I need more. This is not enough. I want more. This is not enough. Right? And so in that comparison, the idea comes, oh, oh, I, I could work a little more. And I became a teacher. I could work even better, you know. I started to get recognition in the work that I was doing as a teacher. Before I know it, they're trying to convince me to become an assistant principal, a principal, a you know, a teacher of teachers. And it was 
very tempting. It fed my ego, it fed my pride, and it didn't hurt that it was helping our pocketbook. Pretty soon I was earning twice what my husband was making. And you can imagine what that does to a marriage that's practically hanging on by a thread, as it were, because we have no shared intimacy, we have no shared faith, no shared prayer. We were truly living a very secular marriage. So we found ourselves in the throes of divorce. My eldest was about 12 years old, 11 or 12. My youngest was around five. And the decision to become, to get a divorce happened in 48 hours. That's how quickly the bomb was set off. Something was revealed in my pride how dare he, and I had had enough. Who are you? Depart from me. I can make it on my own. I have my own money. I know I don't need you. That sense of betrayal, rejection, it tapped into all my wounds that had been there since I was little. The wounds that were attached from the abuse, the emotional abuse, the spiritual abuse, the physical abuse that I had endured as a child. So I went on about my business. Kids are resilient, they'll get over it. They bounce back. I remember hearing, you deserve better. No one ever said, what is God doing in this? No one ever said, what do the kids deserve? It was all about me and all about him in his own brokenness as well, because there's never just one side of the story. So I found myself alone, broken, and quickly became very afraid, afraid of myself, an understanding that I was incapable of living a moral life. And one weekend, my children were with their father on their visitation, and I was just sitting there in the empty house that I had managed to get through, through the divorce, alone, and I just had this ache and this sickness in my heart that drove me to go the only place that I knew. I just had this thought, I need to get to church. I need to get to church. And mind you, I am convinced, I know that I was in a state of mortal sin because I had not been to confession in probably 15 years. And still he calls and I get to church. It's 10 o'clock at night and I'm wandering around the church. There's a car in the parking lot and I'm thinking, maybe I can get in. I don't know why I'm going in, but I, this call, this call. So I came around to the gym. There was a school attached to the church. And I saw a woman cleaning the floors and I knocked on the glass and she looked at me and could see that I was a woman and 
you know, I could see that she was a woman and I guess she figured I wasn't going to try to murder her. So she came close to the door and she didn't speak English. And by God's grace, I'm bilingual. So I spoke to her in Spanish and I said, can I come in? I need to come in for a few minutes. I said, I just need to come in. And she said, okay. And she let me in and I found myself wandering through the church and there was this beautiful set of doors right behind the altar that opened to a room back there. And I'd always wanted to go back and see what that was. So I kind of wandered back through and I found, found myself in a very tiny little chapel. And it probably didn't seat, but maybe a fourth of what this room right here seats, very tiny. And there was a gold box in the middle of the room. And I sat there in the pew and I stared at that gold box, just empty, dying inside. And something, someone called me out of the pew and I got up and I laid down in front of that gold box. I prostrated myself. Now, mind you, I had never seen a priestly ordination. I truly considered it now, I consider it a grace that I laid myself out, prostrate in front of that gold box. And I began to cry. I began to let loose all of my pains, all of my sufferings, all of my history, the neighbor, my parents' arguments and fights, my fear, my own brokenness, every bad decision and bad relationship and brokenness that I had committed or had been committed towards me. My divorce. And this driving love for my children. And I knew laying there on my face that I was going to hell and that in the process I was ruining my children. So I cried and cried and I broke my alabaster jar upon the feet of our Lord. When it was empty, I leaned back on my elbows and I looked up at that box and I said, if you were there, I've been told you're there, if you're there, take over my life and I will do whatever you ask of me. I can't do this anymore. Take over and I will do whatever you ask of me. There was no booming voice. There was no voice that said, it's okay, don't worry about it. It's just a little sin. Silence. I cleaned myself up the best I could. And I went home to my empty house. About two weeks later, back in those days, we kept getting all these um, ad 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 advertisements on the computer for eHarmony. It was everywhere in those days, over and over and over again. Find your perfect mate, blah, blah, blah. And I'd see it all the time. 
And I started to ruminate, knowing that I was in a very dangerous place, that I needed to be married, and more importantly, my children needed a father because it wasn't working. And so I thought one day, I was at work, by the way, very productive. I thought, eHarmony. I wonder if there's a Catholic version of eHarmony. I'm thinking, I didn't marry a Catholic before. I've made a promise. Maybe there's a Catholic eHarmony. You know how the good spirit, I think, works. Just these little random thoughts. And I literally Googled Catholic eHarmony. And up pops Catholic match. And I literally just stared at it and I went, it exists. So with trepidation and a lot of fear, I typed up my little profile and put my picture there. Me and my kids, I come as a package, had these seven tenets of the church and, you know, Mark, if you agree or you don't agree, yes, 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 yes. Oh, contraception, nope. Yes, yes, yes because I had been taught that that rule was made by a bunch of old men on a hill with red hats and that they didn't really know anything about women in our life. And so I had bought into that lie. And I marked it and wrote out a little bit about myself, posted it, sat back, and held my breath because I was afraid. Who knows what's going to happen? I didn't communicate with anybody. And then I get a little email from Dan Burke and looked at his profile and there's his picture with his boys. He comes as a package. Looked at his tenants of the church. Yes, 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 of course. He's a convert. He actually knew the faith much better than I ever did. And his profile, his little biography was he had written it in such a way that it was like, it was in third person, as if it was a female reporter that was interviewing, interviewing him about why would anybody want to get to know him. And in the interview, she starts flirting with him. And I started laughing, and I was laughing so hard that the tears were flowing down my face. And it occurred to me, I don't think I've laughed in 13 years like that. I thought, I'll talk to him. He said, can I talk to you? He was in a different state. Oh, it's safe. He's nowhere near me. This is going to be great. I can just get to know him. And he asked if he could talk to me. So his first question was, will you pray with me? I said, yes. Will you study theology of the body? Yes. Will you talk about the teachings of the church? Yes. And we, everything revolved around Holy Mother Church, the faith. I didn't know my faith was so vast, so deep, so rich, so beautiful. He was teaching me as he was courting me. It was safe. It was holy. It was a true courtship. And we decided to meet one another. And so we drove and mo met one weekend. And I had searched for a place for us to meet because he was in Colorado and I was in 
Texas. And I thought, well, where's someplace in between? And my parents lived in between in New Mexico. And so I knew I had a weekend away with them. My children would be with their father. And so I looked for a church. And I found a little place called Chimayo, New Mexico, that is called the Lords of the Americas where miracles had happened and this beautiful church was built there and outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. I thought, oh, let's meet there, you know. And when we met, um, he's embarrassed to, that I say this, but it's true. We walked up to one another and mind you, we had spent months getting to know one another. And we knew that if we met, there was either something there where we were gonna be called to be married, or that we would be friends forever. And we were okay with either one, but I think we were kind of worried, you know, a little bit. It was nervous, we were nervous. And I remember walking up to him and I saw him standing there and I walked up behind him. He didn't hear me coming. And he turned around and I said, hi. And I just looked at him and he kissed me. And then he said, I'm sorry. <laughs> and he took my hand and we walked into the church and we prayed together. We attended mass together and we spent, he had booked two rooms and we would just talk and walk and go to mass and go to the, stair, the miraculous staircase of, of Loretto in Santa Fe and just try to figure out what was going to go, what was happening. Now, I remember when, we, when our weekend ended and he was going back towards Colorado and I had to go back towards Texas and our cars parted and I saw him in my rearview mirror. I wept because I knew I was in trouble. I was in love with his soul. And he lived in a different state and this was gonna mean radical change in our life and for our kids. He had made a promise to God. His story is a whole nother hour and a half. That if God would bring him the woman who would make Christ the center of his home, that he would marry her. He said, bring me the woman who will sit beside me and make Christ the center of our home. I didn't know about his prayer. He didn't know about my promise. Lord, take over my life and I will do whatever you ask of me. So if it was related to prayer and church, the answer was always yes. And so we started to really grow and thrive in this. Soon we were married after that. We were married on 7-7-07. We didn't pick that date other than knowing that it was the only date that we could get all of our families together. And we built our house on rock, the rock of Holy Mother Church, her teachings, prayer, the sacraments. It was the most redemptive experience of my life. We prayed together and separately. We prayed mental prayer. We were under spiritual direction and we frequented the, the um, sacraments of confession and Eucharist This psalm, if I can find it, was made manifest in our life. 
and we have found over time that he has fulfilled it. Have pity on your servants, O Lord. Satisfy us in the morning with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad as many days as you have afflicted us, and as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be manifest to your servants, O Lord and your glorious power to our children. Let the favor of the Lord be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. He has brought that to completion in us. He continues to work in us. I will tell you what he has done for me. I cried aloud to him, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, the Lord has listened, and he has given heed to the voice of my prayer. As we go through this day, I invite you into that stance before the Lord to let him draw up in you anything that's a barrier to him, anything that you're holding on to. Could be your brokenness, your childhood, woundedness, unforgiveness, iniquity, sin, What is it that separates you from the fullness of what God has for you? Don't hold on to it. You are not your wounds. You are not your past. You are not your brokenness. You are not what you perceive to be your inadequacies. You are not what you perceive to be your limitations. You are a daughter of the King. And I invite you this day to bring your alabaster jar to the Lord and lay it all at his feet, that he might heal you, that he might restore you, and bring you into the fullness of who he's calling you to be. So I want to take a moment to pray before we take a break. Our souls and our bodies are one. When they're separated, that's the moment of death. But as long as we're here on earth, whatever we do with our body affects our soul, and whatever we do with our soul affects our body. It has a profound effect 
And so in our brokenness, as I shared with you, we often enter through our intended, unintended, informed, uninformed, just in our weakness. Sometimes we enter into relationships in our ignorance, in our naivete, and searching for meaning and worth into relationships that do damage to us. The only person that we should have a soul tie is with our spouse. And so that means with our husband, or if we're religious, with the Lord, if we're single, with the Lord, right? That's the only soul tie there should be. But if we've done things in our past with others through codependency, brokenness, sexual activity, all of those things, that can have an effect and it creates a barrier for grace. We need to get rid of that. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head and I'm going to lead you through a short prayer. The power of this prayer is that you're uniting an act of your human will with the divine power of the name of Jesus. He meets you in this. He will sever this soul tie and he will reclaim that space in your soul for him. One caveat, if there's anything there that hasn't been confessed, at your next opportunity, please take it because that's always the most powerful means. Close your eyes. And repeat after me. In the name of Jesus, I break and reject every spiritual, emotional, mental, physical bond, codependent bond, created through any unholy sexual contact or disordered relationship with. Now I want you to gather into a little basket. Place the basket in your imagination. Gather those souls, those faces. Put them in that basket. It can be a parent. It can be a sibling. Any kind of codependent relationship, anything that's disordered, any relationship that's disordered, place them in that basket. And now as you hand these to the Lord, truly pleasant, present here, body, blood, soul, and divinity, repeat after me, in the name of Jesus, I take back 
any authority given to them. And I return any authority and I set them free to your mercy. And I beg you, Lord, turn all curses into blessings. Restore them and me a hundredfold. And I set them free to your mercy. In the name of the Father and the Son.